Welcome to Streaming Thoughts, where we stream our thoughts on movies, TV, and all things nerdy. I am Daniel. And I am Nathan. And welcome to our podcast. So Nathan, what is in the news docket today? I got a question for you. What's up? The upcoming Suicide Squad being directed by James Gunn. Is that a sequel or a reboot? You know, I'm still trying to put my finger on that. Because the first one was Suicide Squad, and this one is the Suicide Squad. See, to me, it sounded originally like a reboot, but the fact that they kept the same actors, or at least some of the actors... Well, I mean, Margot Robbie, I'm fine bringing her back for any property. Oh, for sure. She's great. Viola Davis as Amanda Waller. I mean, didn't Amanda Waller die in the first one? Mm, I don't think so. I don't remember. I thought she did die, and that's why they didn't have to worry about her blowing up their implants anymore. Yeah, I don't remember that movie that well, to be honest. It's a very forgettable movie. Uh, I haven't watched it in a while. I mean, as you know, it was taped to uh, my copy of Blade Runner 2049. I know. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, I've also started to hate it for that reason. (laughs) Kind of an interesting thing. James Gunn was recently doing an interview. He said that he had full freedom to kill any DC character he wanted to. Really? Within the movie, of course. Well, within the movie. He's not going to be like, really? Fine, Superman, right now. (laughs) Bring back Henry Cavill so I can kill him in my movie. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, some people might enjoy that. Get a reboot of uh, the whole reason, like, what if Superman turned evil? Who would stop him? These villains. (laughs) The Suicide Squad. I have a license to kill anybody? Hmm. Suicide Squad against evil Superman. <laughs> there is a there's an idea for a sequel there. So it's just it's kind of a confusing thing, and it is. I'm not I'm not really sure where we're going with it, but we'll see how that turns out. I'm still excited for it, though. I mean, I still want to see it, and it looks great. And here's a weird combination for casting rumors. Ooh, casting rumors. I like those. Well, you know they're making a Disney Plus Moon Knight series, right? Yes. There was this huge blow up on Facebook and Twitter of everybody complaining because a rumor came out that the top two choices for Moon Knight was either David Diggs or Nick Kroll. Mm, okay. Everyone was like so upset, especially for Nick Kroll for whatever reason. I don't know why they were particularly anti-Kroll as Moon Knight. The weird thing about it, on the same day that everybody was getting all upset about this casting rumor, Disney officially announced that Oscar Isaac is going to be Moon Knight. Yeah, which I'm very excited about, by the way. Because I really like Oscar Isaac. I do too, but like, how odd is that? Is like, were they like, maybe considering Isaac Isaac plus these other two, but only the other two got leaked and everyone got upset and they're suddenly going, wait, wait, calm down, calm down. We went with the third guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, although those were originally rumors, right? I mean, was it confirmed that David Diggs was going to be Moon Knight? No, it was never confirmed. It was just, it's just a rumor that suddenly got really big and viral on the same day Disney officially announced Oscar Isaacs, which was just a weird timing on viral internet stuff. Right. Yeah. No, very contradicting. No, but that's good. I mean, the first thing I saw Oscar Isaac in was Ex Machina, which if you want to see Oscar Isaac for the first time, probably that's not the best movie because he was such a dick in that movie. He's the worst. <laughs> and that was my first film of Oscar Isaac. So he can play a hero. I mean, we've already seen him in the Star Wars films, right? So he can pull it off. And another boomerang back to our previous talking points. 
We had talked about how when filming was restarting in New Zealand for Avatar 2, they were pioneering a new underwater motion capture technology. Yeah. Kate Winslet has been practicing with free divers. With the training she's received to do this underwater motion caption, she says she can now hold her breath for seven minutes. Wow. So I am shocked for two reasons. One is seven minutes is a long time. And second, I had no idea that Kate Winslet was going to be in the next Avatar movie. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think I heard it, but I don't really know what her role is going to be. But if she's part of the underwater motion capture, there's a picture of her under the water with what looks to be a huge cape-like thing to capture something. I'm really not sure what it is. I'm kind of wondering if she's been cast as a member of the Navi or... Maybe there's another race of creatures on the planet other than the Navi that we just haven't met yet. The moon, technically. Well, yeah, true. Other aspects. Do not think I didn't notice you cheated on our video game adaptation scale with Mortal Kombat. <laughs> you are going to have to brush up on your video game adaptation skill. Why? Because Netflix has announced a new live-action TV series for Assassin's Creed. Oh, yes. I did see that. What a bizarre thing, to be honest with you. Assassin's Creed has a fairly wide range of backstory and events that can maybe be better told over an extended period of time rather than a singular movie. Yeah, I mean, Assassin's Creed has always been one of my favorite franchises. It kind of died off after, I can't remember which Assassin's Creed I stopped playing after, but I picked up the more recent one and they kind of seemed to get back to trying new things as opposed to making the games formulaic. But you're right, I mean, the Assassin's Creed world has such a vast spectrum of not only types of stories, but in terms of what sort of palette they want to pick, but location and time, I mean, it's, you can do anything, really. Yeah. From a creative standpoint, it's a nice sandbox to play with. Absolutely. And I'm telling you, if we review that one and you cheat your video game adaptation rating scale again, I'm going to make you watch and review the Pac-Man cartoon series. <laughs> <laughs> the Pac-Man cartoon series. Okay. <laughs> I promise that I will give that movie nothing less than an Assassin's Creed rating. <laughs> oh, man. Are you a fan of Crunchyroll at all? Yes, you are looking at a premium member of Crunchyroll. See, Crunchyroll is a great access point for anybody who's a huge fan of anime, especially with new releases that are just coming out in Japan. You usually have a very quick turnaround on getting subtitle episodes up shortly after they air in Japan. So Crunchyroll is a great service. Yeah, it is. We're, we're not getting paid by Crunchyroll, by the way, to say all this. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Not sponsored. Yeah. Crunchyroll, give us money. <laughs> but it is coming out that Sony wants to buy Crunchyroll for $1 billion. Wow. Interesting. I guess that would really open up some more avenues for Crunchyroll, but I don't know. I'm kind of always hesitant when a bigger company takes over a smaller one. Yeah, a lot of people seem to be sharing your sentiment on that because... Sony already has a fairly good name for itself in the anime community as it is. Yeah, exactly. And generally speaking, competition is what people like. Yeah. But I can kind of understand why Sony would be interested in this because 
they are a big name in anime, but they don't have a streaming service. And at the moment, every company wants to have their own streaming platform. Yeah, I mean, Sony kind of tried that, right? With the PlayStation View, I think, or PlayStation something. I can't remember what that service was, but they shut it down because it wasn't financially viable for the company to keep that going. Probably because it was only available to PlayStation owners. Well, well, of course, right? I mean, you're going to limit that to only people who own PlayStations. Whereas, you know, if you go for platforms that host or produce anime content like Crunchyroll, then you definitely have a better business model there. I mean, I can see why they're definitely interested in it. Whether that's a good thing for the platform is another thing, right? It's another conversation. Right. Hopefully it is, and hopefully it works out. I would hate to see Crunchyroll go the way of, like, Quibi or something like that. Oh, God. (laughs) Yeah, no. (laughs) Oh, sent to the digital graveyard. Well, it's just the thing. is like everyone's moved away from traditional cable to get streaming services in order to cut the monthly costs because cable was getting crazy expensive to have access to everything you wanted to have access to. Yeah. But now we are swinging to even higher costs than cable on having all these different streaming services now. Yeah, absolutely. There's going to be a breaking point, and some of these services are going to succeed and reshape the model of entertainment going forward, and some of them are just going to fail. Crunchyroll is kind of on my list of ones I hope it succeeds. Yes, absolutely. I enjoy the platform, so I definitely wanted to succeed. (laughs) (laughs) Tom Holland has recently traveled to Georgia, where he was met with a gift of a brand new iPad. Oh, that's nice of Disney or Marvel. And do you know what was on that iPad? Oh, I think I've heard the rumors that the script for Spider-Man 3 is in there. Yeah. And he showed it off on his Instagram account and promised that he's learned his lesson about spoilers. He did it again, basically, is what you're saying? (laughs) No, no. He hasn't officially given any spoilers. He's saying he's learned his lesson about releasing spoilers on his Instagram and such, but I'm kind of following a little bit closely because if there's any spoilers, it's going to come from him. You never know. Exactly. You never know. (laughs) It's Tom Holland we're talking about. I mean, the worst combination that Marvel and Disney can do is put Tom Holland and Mark Ruffalo in the same movie, like a Hulk Spider-Man movie. That would, we would all know the end of that movie by the second week of filming. (laughs) Great time about. Spider-Man would be the perfect ally for the Hulk. No, yes. I'm t- from a comic book standpoint, yes. But from a production standpoint, I mean, Mark Ruffalo and Tom Holland in the same movie, that script will leak like... So fast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, like, with Spider-Man's Spidey sense to instantly know if he's doing something that will put him into harm. If he was dealing, not with Smart Hulk, but Rage Monster Hulk, he'd be like, instantly know of any action by him or by other people around him will make the Hulk more angry and more uncontrollable. He'd be like the perfect person just to keep the Hulk in line and on target. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it would be a great combo. But look, from all of the reactions that I'm seeing online about this script, though, it's crazy. It's going to be a pretty insane third film. Yeah, it's like so crazy. Like Even on his Instagram release, he said, this is what I'm going to be doing for the next five weeks. I'm like, is he saying he's going to do all of the filming and production and everything for Spider-Man 3 and almost by the time this episode's aired, that'll be that means they'd be practically be done. That would drive me crazy. I don't think it's going to be five weeks. I think he's going to spend five weeks with the script, maybe. 
<laughs> that might make more sense because, I mean, I'm like, yeah, five weeks to complete an entire movie? You, you would have to be a maniac to pull that off. <laughs> yes, you would have to be a maniac, which is the topic of today's episode. It is a miniseries, a Netflix original miniseries that we referenced in a previous episode. I think a couple times, actually. Yeah, yeah. You're right, I think a couple times. And this one's one of my favorite series on Netflix that you don't have to worry about being canceled because this is it. 10 episodes is what you get and it wraps up the story very nicely in those 10 episodes. So Nathan, Maniac, what did you think of it? Something we've talked about a couple times and this I think is a good example of it where American audiences aren't typically prepared or expecting to see a episodic series with no intention of a second season. And this is an example of why that can actually be a very good thing and why it works. Yes, absolutely. I 100% agree with you. This is a satisfying series to watch because it keeps everything neatly wrapped up in this 10 episode series. And I felt like the pacing, the visuals, everything about this show was just so greatly done that at the end I didn't want more of it I was happy with what we got it's like watching a good movie but it's just a very long movie yeah one that you can break up over multiple days and watch at your leisure yeah absolutely although I do have to say when I was studying psychology in college we did an experiment hypernesia which is just the fact that if you get tested on the same thing multiple times your memory over time improves and I had to follow more stringent ethical protocols for that psychiatry test than what they are being forced to follow in the psychiatry experiment. <laughs> well, I mean, this is not our Earth, though. It is not. And what did you think of this not being our Earth? I thought it was a really interesting factor in this movie or in this series, and I really liked it. I thought that because it's not our Earth, they took some really good creative liberties with how everything is represented. It's specifically with design. This movie is like from the set to the props, everything was just so uniquely and beautifully designed. And I loved it. It's like we never came out of the 80s. Yeah, with a lot of this set up, I mean, with like how the monitors are, how, you know, you know, the computer is sci-fi because it has lots of blinky lights on it. That's like late 80s, early 90s sort of aesthetics. Yeah, exactly. But at the same time, it also is incredibly advanced. Because if you look at the world, the world doesn't look like as it was in the 1980s. There's certain elements that do look like from that period. But if you look closely, there are certain cars and car models that are not from the 80s. They were definitely more of the early 2000s uh, or more recent than that. And I think that those small details that you see basically tells you that this is set in a more recent more recent time. In other elements, such as the more advanced uh, robotic sanitation drones that are keeping the sidewalks clean. Right, exactly. See, all these things and this kind of this weird juxtaposition of technology we are on the verge of having and technology we long since abandoned. I have to tell you, I kept actually expecting a unreliable narrator situation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking as he was going through his, quote, treatments for this 
pharmaceutical companies drugs that at some point the big reveal was going to be he's just at a normal psych ward all the rest of these weird elements were just Mm -hmm. fictions of his schizophrenic delusions i can see that and i think definitely the visuals of this of this series also really played a big role into that right the specific tone that they picked for the series for when they were out of the experiments for when they were in the experiments or you know through those those visions if you go back and you see the first few episodes you get to see some of those elements that would later end up in their visions, right? In those lives that they get to live, basically. Again, someone did their homework because if you think of these visions as the computer drawing upon their experiences to create artificial dreams to allow them to work through their psychological psychoses, then that would be a very logical thing that you would see of having all these elements being set up and being what it gets pulled on in order to create your dreamscape. And again, that kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, right, with regards to the technology of it being powerful enough to create these and navigate and manage these dream worlds or these universes that are being made and looking like something that if you look at it and from today's standpoint, your smartphone has probably more (laughs) computing power than a computer of that size from that period of time, right? (laughs) Right. And so I think that that comparison or that juxtaposition of really old looking technology having the processing power of like the world's best supercomputers it's really cool i really enjoy that something else that they kept doing visually that i was always expecting it to come back and play a significant role and i don't think it ever really did every time they powered up the supercomputer to engage their minds with their microwave headsets which (laughs) apparently they're cooking their brains in order to get them to have these visions (laughs) yeah they were always show this one spot where the wire wasn't actually connected and it was arcing yeah (laughs) the exposed wire (laughs) i kept expecting this to be like a major problem like they would power them up and this would arc and cause the fire and then everything goes haywire after that point that's what i was expecting to be the thing that causes the supercomputer ai to melt down right you can definitely tell this is not the same universe as ours because in our universe that would be a problem in electronics to have exposed wires like that <laughs> <laughs> it's like you might want to get that fixed <laughs> yeah that's not a, that's not what you should have in your computer is exposed wires <laughs> actually in college I once had a uh, motherboard I got off of a friend that when you hooked up to the power source, it actually created electrical arcs like that. Oh, nice. That he was just going to throw away. And I went to try and turn it into an art piece or, you know, and such, but wasn't actually allowed to uh, keep it around because it was a fire hazard. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, technically. For me, at least, there was a lot of things that I felt was a huge misdirect trying to make you expect one thing to come and then the actual problem is coming from something else. Yes, this series is really good at subverting your expectations, especially when it comes to the visual elements. Absolutely. They know how to draw your attention to certain elements and features and make you expect something to come from that than have the element actually come from a more interconnected personal issue. And it's never a letdown either. No, it's not. When the problem isn't that it causes a fire and causes a short circuit on the AI, but the problem is 
is is that the guy who designed the AI had major mommy issues. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't expected, but man, it made a lot of sense in the moment when you got that reveal. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely it did. And there's a lot of elements of that, I think, kind of spread throughout the series. Specifically, I think with the with the casting, right, of Jonah Hill and Emma Stone as Owen and Annie, I think that that casting of these two actors was super, super great. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a that's a little bit of a joke, by the way, in regards to the fact that the first film that I've actually saw both Emma Stone and Jonah Hill on together was super bad. <laughs> nice. So it's funny that I had to recall the first time I saw Emma Stone and Jonah Hill. And I know for a fact that Jonah Hill was in Superbad. And I remember Jonah Hill being in Superbad. And then I realized, oh my God, wait a minute. I have all also seen Emma Stone in, for the first time in Superbad. So both of these actors in the same film, and now I'm watching them again together 20-some or almost 20 years later. See, I still want to see something with Jonah Hill that causes him to really stretch his acting ability because I kind of feel he's still being typecast a little bit. A little bit, yeah. Although I feel like he was able to stretch a little bit more in this series because of the different people he got to play. Yeah, I mean, especially some of the more fantasy ones, I thought he was much better in his acting portrayal, while his main character, his quote, real self, he was still typecast as that very low self-esteem, insecure person that he has done in so many other movies. Right, for sure. I want to see him do more of the types of casts that allow him to be more confident, allow him to be more direct, the kind of things that you saw in some of those fantasies. Like Snorri. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is such a weird name i'm like am i hearing that right i know right so i had to put subtitles on just to make sure i was hearing it right <laughs> so what did you think of the introduction of sally field as dr greta Mantelray? i thought that introduction was really interesting of the person that james described right this monster of a human after that's done and you get to see the real dr greta Mantelray kind of see a more vulnerable side of her to begin with, which I thought that that was a really interesting way to subvert your expectations of expecting this powerful woman in command of everything and looking at her and not standing in that same way. Yeah, that was something that I really felt is a lot of Sally Field's previous role, she was a lot more commanding. This one, she was a lot more subtle in her command of the room and control of the environment she's in. Yes, Absolutely. And also kind of set the tone, right, for the for how we were going to perceive this character. I thought that it was really well portrayed, though, and well acted by Sally Field in that performance, I thought was just phenomenal. I mean, she really was Dr. Greta Mantle Ray, in my mind, of how she came across, especially with the relationship she had with her son. I thought that was just really well done. And the more that you saw her son, uh, Justin Thoreau was really chewing the scenery with his own issues. Yes. She was really able to play off of that and really kind of like cue him up to take it down. And it's like, I, I rather like that interaction of casting choices for mother and son. Yes. The chemistry between those two was absolutely great. You definitely had that mother and son feel energy between the two of them and I think that the way that they were trying to spar so to speak with this mental analysis of that they were doing back and forth to themselves 
was just so dysfunctional, <laughs> <laughs> but it was so real. I mean, it was so great to see that portrayal of both of these two actors and just kind of speaks to, again, the chemistry between the two of them and how great they were. And then, of course, how Justin Theroux's character was introduced to begin with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what an entrance, right? <laughs> that was just so weird. I'm like, what is going What is this? What is going on here? And you know what? Both of these two characters, James Mantle Ray and Greta Mantle Ray, are sort of depicted in a similar light, right? With Dr. Greta Mantle Ray, and this really seems like a very vulnerable state that she's obviously dealing with some kind of medical issues. And so she's in this very vulnerable state. And Jane's mental ray, similar vulnerable state, but they're both in. So it's, again, kind of interesting how they both were presented in the same light. Although I do have to say, ultimately, I was a little disappointed with the very final results of the experiment. What made you disappointed? In the end, they're portraying the super smart AI as having been a complete failure, waste of money and resources, waste of all this other stuff, right? But you can look at it another way where it's a complete success. Yeah, I mean, I took it as a success and not necessarily a failure. That's how I interpreted it. You take a look at something Jonah Hill said, he has schizophrenia. There's no cure for schizophrenia. There's only treatment. And his problem is, is that he hasn't been on his treatment properly for any extended period of time. While Emma Stone's character was all about escaping. She wanted to just escape from the need to be dealing with anything or having any responsibility for anything. The machine gave them both that choice. They both had the option of just simply escaping into the delusions, but at the same time, out of all the interactions of the different people, she kept putting them together from the very beginning. Almost like the machine knew that in order for her programming to cure their psychoses, she needed someone that Jonah Hill could rely on to make sure he stuck to his scheduled medication because he would never rely on his family the way that his family life has been growing up. It also knew that Emma Stone, in order to truly get over the loss of her sister, she needed someone that she could rely on, someone that they, quote, shared all the same stories someone that she was intimately connected with. So Gertie saw these two people and not only kept connecting them in their dreams, Gertie was giving them entire lives together. Something she wasn't doing for anybody else because that was the means that she saw that they needed in order to heal. And even at the very end, even though Gertie was fighting Emma Stone wanting to set free, at the very end when they had finally made that connection and made those choices, she just stepped aside all by herself. They didn't have to defeat the evil AI. It was just, the AI was just suddenly knowingly smiling, stepping away and leaving. Right, exactly. I think that the moment that that kind of show that the AI realized that was when Emma Stone's character Annie told Gertie that nobody knows, right? Sometimes we don't know how to deal with these things. And this is why we look for help, right? It's because sometimes we don't know how to deal with this stuff. And I think that that was a re huge revelation for Gertie because Gertie was supposed to have all the answers, right? She was supposed to know how to deal with this, how to deal with anything. And I think that when that revelation came, I was expecting that there was going to be a different ending with regards to Gertie and not being destroyed, especially after she asked to not be punished for feeling sad, right? And I thought there was a really powerful line in the film. And again, what I expected was not what happened. I was expecting that because everything was looked like it was 
coming to a resolution, everything was going to be okay. And there wasn't going to be this, you know, destruction of the Gertie. Exactly. And that's what I was expecting too, is they would be trying to stop Gertie, which ultimately had very much of a HAL 2000 feel as he was pulling out her components one at a time, changing <laughs> right, her right. ability to interact. I was expecting before he actually accomplished his goal, all of a sudden everything would come back online and suddenly be like, project completed or something like that. And they'd be like, wait, what? Exactly. I was expecting that and not what we got, which to me was one of those endings where it sort of felt like, at least with regards to the experiment of something that like we all know it worked, but the scientists don't think it did. Like, right, like the audience knew knows this. Sometimes those kinds of, you know, resolutions to certain storylines can feel very satisfying. And but for the most part, I don't really tend to feel that way. It reminds me of Contact, for example, the 1996 movie based on the Carl Sagan book, right? You know, where everyone questioned what Ellie in the film experienced with the aliens when traveling to all of these places in the galaxy and the way that they show that as if there wasn't any other way like audience watching the film knew what happened but the rest of the world is like no we don't believe in that or you know they're very skeptical about it and then they show that hey by the way there's like 18 hours of recording in this thing might be 18 hours of static but we're not gonna publicly admit yeah. to that <laughs> right and then that kind of ruins that whole ending a little bit more right and so it, it sort of gave me this same feeling of what I felt with the film Contact which the book did a much better job of handling the ending by the way than the movie did and I agree with you on Contact because you see her pass straight down but every scientist working on this knew that the idea was a wormhole and a wormhole twists and warps space and time so the amount of time that she could have been gone and then coming back really could have seen like a single plummet drop down for us that for her could have been experienced in any other number of different ways than what she was so the fact that there was 18 hours of the static recording captured in like the five seconds it took her to drop that should have immediately been a tip for every single scientist working on this saying no something did happen and this makes sense which of course is written by carl sagan so of course right. that makes sense from a space yeah. type kids <laughs> perspective so i agree that ending didn't make sense because they were just looking for a patsy that they ultimately said oh well i guess we can't really blame her for the failure of this we're just gonna sweep it under the rug i'm like uh whatever this one they had their you know patsy justin thoreau's character to take all the blame for all the failure but it wasn't actually a failure overall it just made me really sad for Gertie. Yeah, exactly. It really brought nothing but sadness for me. Absolutely. Especially after the last thing that Gertie said, you know, of like, please don't punish me because I'm sad. That was such a powerful line. It really made you feel for Gertie and what she was going through. I mean, you know, she lost someone very important to her, right? And so that was what caused all of this to begin with. And then what did you think of the different universes or the different worlds that they got to experience well i mean again i like how each one kind of just represented a different aspect of their personalities and the things that they needed to get over such as her defense mechanism of lying and wanting to not trusting anybody anymore his defense mechanism of always giving in and not confronting anybody on it especially with like the magical chapter that was going to allow them to grant one wish or whatever and then the in-universe representation of gertie coming up to him and being like you know that doesn't work right that isn't actually a wish <laughs> right again you could see how they were building up how gertie was working the system 
to try and get them to overcome their individual flaws and say, there's not a magical wish. There's not a magical solution to the universe. You need to take action yourself. You need to be the driving focus on this. The one where that kind of comes back as an interesting but questionable resolution in the story. Again, back to expecting a different outcome. When he sees his, his psychosis version of his brother, and his brother is leading him on the path of the pattern, saying everything is coming up to this, this is where you were meant to save humanity, and it was solving a Rubik's Cube to shut down Gertie. Again, I expected that to have a significant payoff. Right. That sort of set the expectation that Gertie was going to be saved, and she wasn't going to be destroyed, and it was going to lead to, hey, we figured something out. This is how we fix all of these issues. This is how we address all of these issues issues that people are having is through a combination of artificial intelligence and pharmaceutical, right? Of being able to be taken to these places and experiences. I thought it was going to be a situation where, you know, Dr. Mantle Ray would say where we failed was in thinking that people were equipped to dealing with this on their own, just as much as people need each other in the real world, we need them to stick together in these sort of dream worlds that are constructed for them. And that is the key to addressing all of these issues that we have. Right. I mean, overall, that was just one of the things that you're expecting one thing, you're expecting certain elements to have payoffs. And while for the most part, when they sub subvert your expectations, it was satisfying. This was just one of those ones that it wasn't. I, I wanted to have a payoff from that. I wanted all this stuff set up about his psychosis being imaginary brother who was a lot better guy than his real brother, always telling him, you have worth, you have value, you are going to save humanity. And I wanted a payoff on that. I wanted him to be better for it in Absolutely. the end. Absolutely. Now... Uh, this question will connect back to my previous question about the worlds that were created. Do you feel like, from a macro view of this show, do you feel like all of those worlds fit, so to speak, within the greater narrative? Or do you feel like there's a little bit of disconnect between all of the stories? Well, the only one that was a little bit of a disconnect at the time, but in hindsight comes back and actually fits in really well, is when he escaped his world to go into Annie's world as the red tail hawk. <laughs> Annie, it's me, Owen, as a hawk. <laughs> right. That, at the time, felt really disconnected. I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. But thinking about it in hindsight and about how his brother had gotten so mad that he killed the hawk, even though he told the little girl that they set it free, him taking that over was like a huge step in him rising up against what his brother had traumatized and put him through as a kid. So in that aspect, it was like, okay, at the moment, it didn't feel right. But in hindsight, that makes a lot of sense. Yes, absolutely. What about for you? How did you think these worlds inter interconnected? I think that they flowed really well from one another. As you said, I think that what they were trying to show us of the aspect of every one of these characters of both Owen and Annie's psychology, right? And what issues they were we were addressing or we were looking at. How they progressed in showing us that was really well done. In particular, I like the last two, right? I mean, especially the fantasy one, just because obviously I'm a nerd and I really enjoy fantasy stories. And so that was really, in my mind, 
mind was my favorite one. Visually speaking, too, that was a beautiful world. I mean, they really nailed that whole fantasy experience of this like kind of over the top fantasy, but still really beautiful looking without it being like too over the top. And I loved her ranger character. I thought she was hilarious. Yeah. And had a great <laughs> rapport with the haughty elven princess at the same time the reveal that the invisible assassins that had been hunting them was really just elements of herself that she was running from i'm like this is well thought out this was a good structured story yeah absolutely it definitely is especially when she became aware that she was living in this place she was annie and not anya i could have gone either way to be honest i could have gone with more her being stuck in that world but i really like that reveal and that switch and another thing with that reveal as soon as she realized that she wasn't anya she was annie and they continued on the journey she kept saying oh and this is when anya is going to betray you this is when anya is going to make it not be a real thing that she's leading you to this is when she's going to be the con man but then it was a real thing and it was like no anya was legit annie is not be more like Anya. Right. I think subvert is just a common theme that we see in this series, you know, just how a lot of hidden items and hidden things, they're very obviously in the background. And I feel like that's sort of what this series tends to do a whole lot. Like even right off the gate, we see all of these elements in the background, right, of what later ends up being worlds that are built around it, like the great truck, for example. We see that in almost every single, no, we do see that in every single innovation that that we see right even the fantasy world the evil queen shows up with her henchmen in the great truck it's like where is this coming yeah. from <laughs> in a freaking great truck yeah <laughs> yeah exactly and i think that those elements again were there at the beginning and if you really paid attention you get to see all of those elements like for example the fantasy world with the elves and all that stuff that was on the windowsill there was a whole forest with figures of elves and all of that stuff in the background from there and of course the conversation that annie had with her sister about that story right of of the elf and yeah wasn't there a time when she's watching like tv with her sister and there's elves and fantasy on it yeah exactly those two details are combined right to kind of give you this imagery and this world that we're about to see later and i think that the way that they integrate that from the get-go in the background of the earlier episodes just again really well done if there's anything that this movie does really or excuse me anything that this series does really well is creating a really good well-constructed setting and watch and pay attention to what is happening in the background of the early episodes because they are all going to come to the foreground of the later episodes it's nicely structured nicely paced for that absolutely definitely is all right so nathan should we jump into our tldl too long didn't listen and this is a section where we give you our closing or final thoughts on the movie or tv series that we're discussing so nathan maniac tldl this was an enjoyable series works very well as an example of sit down watch it enjoy it for what it is it doesn't need more it has a satisfying resolution all the characters grow and become better people even the supporting character of the doctors get closure on different aspects of their life once you're done with it and you've had time to sit and think and re-break down some of the elements of what happens in the later part of the show it also works very well to let it marinate in the back of your mind and come back and rewatch it at a future date for a 
different level of enjoyment of the series. Absolutely. And this is one of those things that is of benefit for limited series is the fact that you can come back and watch it again. Like you're saying, Nathan, really get to experience it in a different light and get to have a different level of enjoyment on it. I second all of those. This is a fantastic series. You're going to really like it. I, I will warn on the later episodes, there is a couple of really violent scenes that are very gory. So keep an eye out for those if you're very sensitive to that kind of stuff. But other than that, this is a phenomenal show. I highly recommend it. And Netflix or any other platforms that are out there need to take a page. Age. This is how you do TV. This, I believe, is the future of TV on doing this limited series and doing this, you know, nicely wrapped, tightly efficient series. I think this is what the future of TV is, and we need more of these. Well, Dan, with all of that, there's one thing we didn't quite get around to talk about, and that was Annie's recreational use of a drug that allows her to relive the worst moment of her life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So my, I guess my final question for you is, do you think if such a drug existed that there would be a recreational use for such a thing? You know, I would say, sadly, yes. I'm not going to lie. There's probably people out there who would take this recreationally. I mean, I wouldn't. <laughs> not even close. But some people would. But hey, if you think that there will be people out there who would uh, use this recreationally, you can definitely let us know by hitting us up on Facebook at Streaming Thoughts and on Twitter at Streaming Geek. This has been Nathan. And this has been Daniel. Thank, Thank you for, for listening. listening.